It takes more than great code to be a great software engineer. This is Soft Skills Engineering, episode 60. Soft Skills Engineering is a weekly advice podcast where developers and other engineers write in with questions and we provide answers. I'm your host, Dave Smith. I'm your host, Jameson Dance. Silence is the third host. <laughs> I'm just going to read our first question. We have We have nothing, just raw knowledge to drop. Yeah, I mean... And it just, starts... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say we're going for high information density, but every word I add reduces our information <laughs> density. <laughs> I'm going to densify it right now. What is the best seating arrangement for engineers? This is from an anonymous listener, um, and that's all the question right there. Short What's the best seating the arrangement? Point. Yeah. Uh, ball pits. Definitely. Is, uh, I think um, I think right side up has been used ad nauseum, and we should try upside down. We need to disrupt seating arrangements in terms of the the y axis that people sit. That's in. right. That's <laughs> right. Invert the y axis. Yeah, uh, the z axis too. You should sit with your. Is that with your back to the computer? Would that be what the z axis is? That's only for back end developers. Oh, okay, <laughs> I I worked with a with a guy who had the weirdest chair I've ever seen. It was like the chair was in front of you and you sat on it and there was this piece that you leaned your chest up against. And okay. it, I don't know, it looked like a torture device, but it made him very comfy. It sounds like something I would have seen in a public library when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. In, in like the seventies. I, I never could figure out how those worked. <laughs> <laughs> um, but probably it costs like 15 times what those things cost. Cause it's, office furniture right i think the ideal seating arrangement is you have a circle and in the middle is a single developer and on the outside there are like three salespeople and two marketing people and two products people all sitting around the one developer like so that they can all orbiting like moving in a circle (laughs) well they don't even have to orbit but it's just so that they can easily and quickly get a hold of the developer with all of their needs and and then the developer can help them with their needs (laughs) <laughs> we need to add a feature hey we need to add this tracking code hey we need to move this button hey, and I found a bug. yeah they're all real close that's perfect really convenient for them it's so convenient for them maximize um, interruptibility <laughs> you're lowering the cost of context switching because that's right it's really easy for the salespeople to turn around and tap the developer on the shoulder that's right um <laughs> That's really good. (laughs) Oh, so I think a bunch of people would say that the ideal seating arrangement is if they are sitting at home and all their teammates are also sitting at home. Yeah. Wherever they freaking want in their home or outside their home. Yeah, and then it's like on your couch or on the beach or... I saw a tweet the other day from someone who works from home and I think he was sitting on his back porch and watching his kids jump on the trampoline or something and he was basically humble bragging about about that <laughs> sounds like he wasn't working very hard <laughs> that's the fear about remote work isn't it <laughs> they're not doing anything that people are at home watching their kids jump on the trampoline instead of working mm-hmm. the classic classic fear yeah uh i think a lot of this will be very subjective because people like different stuff right some people love open offices. Some people love private offices. Some people love working from home. Some people hate working from home. But everyone hates cubicles. I've never worked in a cubicle. I worked in one 
I'm thinking, I think I've worked in two cubicles before my first quote real job as an intern. Were they like, like they were stacked? You had a double decker. <laughs> 3D cubicles. There's all this wasted space above the developer's heads. Yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> With the fireman pole to slide down. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't really have a strong opinion. I just know that people make fun of them a lot. Yeah. So uh, I have my ideal office arrangement. Um, and I think it would match some other people's and some people would hate it. My ideal setup is you have kind of a private wing, I guess, for a team. Um, and this depends on how your teams are organized. This this could be a developer team or like a product team where there's people from multiple different roles. But the team is all together in the same wing. There's a central communal space with like couches or desks or chairs or whatever, where people can all be out in the open and and have that spontaneous communication that people love about open offices but it's surrounded by a ring of private offices and everyone has their own private office so that if you want, you can go into your happy, quiet place and, and just crank stuff out. And what's the size of these private offices? Uh, I don't think they have to be big, just, I don't know, big enough so that you can have a desk with a computer on it. Unless they're mine in that case, it's the corner office that has a putting green inside of it. <laughs> um, because... Isn't that what happens? I don't, I don't know. I associate putting greens with like the executive offices. Yes, yes. And Jameson's office. Yeah. The putting green is like a mini golf course because there's a ball pit um, with a little bridge over it and you have to make it across the bridge like with your putt. So it's a combination <laughs> putting green ball pit. Uh, yeah, I don't think they have to be big at all. I think it's just a, a space for you to work that's your own space that you can shut the door and... and okay. Have you done. ever seen that anywhere? Yes, I have. Um, my company was moving office spaces and we moved into a temporary office while our new space was being prepared. And that temporary office had this exact setup. It was this big open room with a bunch of couches in the middle and some desks. And then all around it, it had this circle of private offices and people just kind of like shuffled in and out. And some people hated the private office thing and they just didn't want one and never went in theirs. Mm -hmm. And some people loved it and, and spent most of their time there. But the the choice and the flexibility was really good because um, yeah, some people like different environments and there are different so, trade-offs. So when you went into your private office and closed the door, was that a signal to your team members that you were not to be interrupted? That was pissed off. <laughs> you were fuming? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. I mean, people, they just didn't open the door. We had chat like everyone has. So mm -hmm. you could, you could get slacked or whatever the chat thing was we used back then. Okay. I mean, the, the, the value of private offices is you get to focus in, a, and hopefully you get more in the flow and you can mm -hmm. do deep work where you think without interruption. And the value of the open office space is, um, it looks really good to investors when they come visit. <laughs> Just kidding. It's you have all this spontaneous communication where you're sitting at a table and you overhear someone else say like, we're going to use MongoDB twice upside down. And then you're like, that's a <laughs> terrible idea. And you go talk it out. And it's like stuff you hear that spontaneously creates value, okay. but you're way more interruptible. So right, right. The, the flexibility of having both of those feels like the ideal for me. So the closest I've ever come to a private office was sitting two to an office, which I did for about seven years at one company. And I liked it pretty good because a lot of times the two people in the room 
that shared a room, they wouldn't even necessarily be working on the same team. You just mm-hmm. happen to cohabitate in the same office space. And it worked out pretty good. I liked it. I think like anything, there's probably a pendulum and the pendulum to me feels like it's swinging away from open offices, but maybe mm-hmm. it's not. I don't know. Open offices have been cool for a long time and I hate them and I think they're horrible. And then we'll probably swing back to something else and then we'll realize how horrible it is and then swing back to <laughs> space open offices or whatever the next I haven't iteration seen is. any evidence that open office space is, is uh, going away. If really? anything, I see more and more of it. Yeah, because it's just so freaking cost effective. Yeah, that's it's super cheap, and for a while it had this this aura of startup cool. Yeah, and yeah, I, it I was think like the aura synonymous. of startup cool is leaving it a little bit. I, I guess this is, this is like Twitter influence, which is different from what people go out and pay money for. Yeah. Okay, I guess you're right. Literally every company I can think of around here has an open mm-hmm. office. <laughs> mm-hmm. Every company but I've ev- been to in the last like two years has an open office plan but people are mad about it on twitter and they didn't yeah no one no one likes it (laughs) but it doesn't matter because they don't know the ceo likes it because he can look out over his domain and observe all the people (laughs) that are working and he just like feels like look at my team and look at all this really weird paternal thing yeah i I think that's a lot of it (laughs) that's actually funny you say that about the ceo because my last company got a new ceo um like about a year ago or less and he came in and had one of these all hands, you know, Q and a, and one of the comments he made in the first all hands meeting was we're going to get rid of this private office thing. And, um, and we're going <laughs> to, we're just going to go to like a big open community thing. And everyone of course groaned, you know, <laughs> so it's timely. <laughs> Great. Great. <laughs> uh, what was the reaction to it? Oh, people were, the engineers were just like ready to stage a coup like instant it was just like instant rage <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it was pretty funny so there's a company around here called mx that has an enclosed developer area mm-hmm. but it's an open office inside that area so it's more of a uh, firewall <laughs> yeah it really is and there are locks on the doors oh my there are key card locks and non-engineering key cards do not open the door oh my goodness it's because they used to have apparently this is apocryphal but apparently they used to have such a big problem with salespeople coming in and bugging developers and tapping them on the shoulder that that the cto literally walled off the development team and said like <laughs> you cannot just come in and bug us all the time and did, he, did, did the cto stack up like a bunch of furniture like les mis barricade style <laughs> in your daily stand-up uh today i'm gonna man the barricades (laughs) that's a great metaphor for preserving productivity of your engineering team especially since all of those people ended up dead yeah (laughs) i'm gonna go murder some salespeople. (laughs) um don't do that but i i think i mean the the concerns around office space and seating arrangements are all like how do we promote teamwork and unity? How do we um, allow people to be productive and get stuff done? And different people have different values of productivity. Like to the product team, productivity is, I want to talk to the developers all the time so I can see what's going on and give them feedback and and tell them what the product needs to do. And Mm -hmm. to the developers, it could be, I want a whiteboard the size of a football field so I can draw (laughs) my microservices architecture. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) in complete detail and i don't know 
Have you ever seen any kind of credible research on this topic? Yeah, Peopleware um, is an older book from the 80s, but it has some studies about developer productivity. There's one from IBM too. If I were a smarter podcaster, I would have read these before this episode <laughs> and been able to cite them productively. Uh, Instead, just fake your way through it. <laughs> yeah, I'll make stuff up and you'll just believe me. Um, I think Peopleware specifically cites that like hub and spoke thing where there's mm -hmm. a central hub with private mm -hmm. kind of spokes. I don't know if they say single person or multiple person offices, but it's like the central shared space, private space around it. Mm -hmm. And then the IBM study is also from the 80s. And I can't remember its conclusion. I'm just going to assume it supports my my biases, which yeah, is exactly. that open office space sucks <laughs> and cubicles, cubicles suck. I have I have heard of some research being done in this area, but I don't ever remember feeling convinced. Like, oh yeah, that's that's definitely the definitive answer. And so I think my my general approach to this question is: in the absence of good hard data, go with what your people want, so they'll feel good when they come to work. Yeah. That seems good. It could also be a cultural thing. Like Fog Creek is famous for saying every developer gets a private office and and yeah. they have their beliefs that that's better. But to some extent, that's a, that's a flag that they plant that says like, right. here is who we are and how we're different. Um, Basecamp is all about remote work and everyone's 100% remote and that's their flag. Yeah. And some people uh, say you should feel a lot like you're working in a garment sweatshop where everyone is in this giant warehouse on desk together. That's <laughs> yep. their flag. Oh, I know um, of one company like that. It just looks awful when you walk oh, in. Oh, man. It's the word dystopian springs to mind. <laughs> yeah. But again, that's my personal opinion. And I've talked to people who work there and they're like, no, I don't, I don't mind. I like it. Yeah. yeah. I and mean, I'm like, oh. I guess if you're working on interesting problems with people you like, the yeah. din of yeah. 3,000 other people in the room also working <laughs> fades away. But... <laughs> Your passion will crowd out the noise. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll give you these noise-canceling headphones so that the, the miles of open space around you where everywhere you look, you see busy activity will not distract you anymore. <laughs> noise-canceling headphones plus VR. That might be the answer to open office space. You feel like you're in a beautiful meadow and you can't hear yeah. your coworkers. But the reality yeah. is there's a sweaty developer two inches away from you. <laughs> <laughs> you know that scene in The Matrix where they're all in those pods? Uh-huh. Perfect. It, like, it, it reveals what the real world is where they're in these like little yeah. egg yeah, yeah. sack things. Uh -huh. Yeah. That's, you could cram a lot of people in one room. Think about the efficient. dollars per square footage you get out of that, out of The Matrix. It's Think so good. Think of how impressive it would look to, to, to executives. Oh, yeah. If you walk in, you just saw these productivity columns of people <laughs> <laughs> uh is this wisdom i was gonna say no it's not but yeah it is i think you have wisdom <laughs> any any matrix <laughs> reference so I, I think at the end of the day for me i've worked in so many different environments now so right now i'm working in an open floor plan really tightly packed in with some amount of partitioning between teams so there's like these like head height walls between teams mm -hmm. but other than that it's just kind of an open area i've worked in the semi-private office two to an office i've worked in a less private office like four five six to an office with a common collaboration area in the center like you described the hub and spoke at the end of the day i was able to be a productive developer in all of these environments and and i it was never like a deciding factor about going to or leaving a job 
It was just mm-hmm. kind of a secondary thing. But I'll tell you what, at my last company, we had the hub and spoke thing with semi-private offices around the perimeter. And I walked through, I walked so many candidates through that space as we were interviewing them. And I kind of extolled the virtues of having this open collaboration area with these semi-private offices that are quiet working spaces for your team. And people had very strong positive reactions to that. They really seemed to like it. So I think it was a good selling point for them. But again, I don't think it really made or break, made or broke the deal for them deciding to take the job. Hmm. I'm trying to imagine if there is there's this theoretical job out there that I'm really excited about and then they have a giant open office space and how would it make me feel about it? And I would definitely be less excited about it. I don't know if I would be less excited enough to say no, but... There would probably have to be one or two other things, I'm guessing, for you to say no. Yeah, if that was the only thing, I don't know. It, it would definitely be a negative for me. Right. Um, but I have worked with brilliant engineers not just like random people not random not just the commoners (laughs) (laughs) i've worked with with brilliant engineers who legitimately love open office setups um and and they love just walking around and talking to people and bouncing ideas off anybody and and the the collaboration that it brings we call those extroverts jameson (laughs) that is so true no extroverts allowed in this place. <laughs> I guess maybe you have to think about the, those when you're those terms when you're designing your office space. Like, am I going to exclude introverts or extroverts? You know, can I create a? I suspect that the people who decide what office space looks like are more extroverted, and so oh, yeah. But also, they get their own private corner office, so they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So, is there what is the best seating arrangement? Who freaking knows? <laughs> That's your answer. <laughs> I know my ideal. I'm going to build it. And then people who like my ideal will come work there. But if you build it, I, th- I don't think that's universal. <laughs> All right. Question, Next question. Question sort of pretty much answered. Question joked about. Question, question used by Jameson <laughs> to expose his anti-authoritarian tendencies. <laughs> Okay, I'll read our next question. So this one comes from an anonymous listener, and I think you'll know why after we read it. <laughs> um, it's so funny, actually. We get so many questions, and uh, it's like I, I, I'll read, I'll be one or two sentences into the question, and I'll be able to predict whether they checked the keep me anonymous box, <laughs> you know? Yep. <laughs> we could probably train a machine learning model on the question text and be able to predict the toggle state of that checkbox pretty well. Uh, yeah, we'll be off a couple months. No more new episodes while we embark on a project. Okay. So, um, this is one of my favorite questions of all time. When Jameson and I read it, we both just were like totally perked up and we're like, we definitely have to answer that even though we don't know how to answer it. (laughs) Don't say that. Oh, right. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Here we go. Quote, how can I disarm someone who is emotionally attached to their code? I work with a CTO who wrote a large part of our production on his own, but the code is very buggy, hard to test, has zero documentation or comments, is very brittle, and hard to understand. When we bring up changing it, he gets angry and tells us that we're not focused on delivering a finished product. Oh, man. So many good things here. Oh, I, <laughs> did you love the word disarm in this one? Yeah. I did. I would, it made me have all these images and of memories of talking to people and, and tension was escalating. And if I had just thought, okay, you need to disarm this. Oh, that would have been awesome. Well, sometimes you disarm them by attacking. Like Liam Neeson just like, karate chops some dude's arm. And like then, literally remove their arm. <laughs> then they drop the gun. <laughs> and they're disarmed. 
<laughs> and then they feel vulnerable and they can feel empathy again. Yeah, then once you've karate chopped them into submission. <laughs> then you can have a productive truly, conversation. Yeah, then then you just open up. <laughs> Look, I don't think we're seeing eye to eye, but if I put you in some pain, I think you'll see we'll see each other better. <laughs> okay, so, uh, I've been so, in this situation with um coworkers, but never with like my boss. This this adds another oh, wrinkle to it. Oh yeah. Cause I think it's I think it's fairly common for people to get defensive about their code and feel ownership over this this uh this artifact they've created. And then someone someone criticizes it and they're criticizing them because mm-hmm. they're the creator. Yeah, I, I think the meta point here is to take and we'll get back to the actual answer, I think. But the, a meta point for me is to take a lesson from this. You are not your code. And if someone wants to delete your code, they probably have legitimate reasons for doing it. So hear them out. You know, talk to them if you're ever on the other side of this thing. Don't get all don't, don't get your ego all wrapped up in it. Yeah. I mean, we've already talked about karate chops and the meta point. I think we've answered the question, right? <laughs> <laughs> Com- completely no, avoided so what it. Is, what does this anonymous listener do? In this specific situation. Okay, so I was in this situation about five years ago, but a little different, and I would say the quality wasn't so bad. But basically, my my CTO had written a bunch of code. They were in the process of porting uh, the code from one language to another language, and um, they had just kind of directly ported a lot of the code from the old system to the new, but there it wasn't clear how much of the old system was going to be used in the new system. So there was a lot of extra code just sitting around and it was a problem, not because it was buggy or low quality. It was polluting my grep results. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I, I like search for a variable name and I find 20 false positives because it's in this dead branch of code, not branch, like a dead section of the code that's not going to be used immediately. And I went to my CTO and I was like, can I delete this code? And he was, he was like, no, that code was developed, and I'll quote here, at great expense. Like he was worried about losing the investment that had gone into bringing that code to life. And I was like, oh man, I like, it's just, okay, can I, so finally I I said, well, how about this? I know you want to keep that code around for reference when we eventually need it, but we don't need it right now. So can I make like a backup copy of the code? (laughs) So I (laughs) did, did your CTO know about version control? (laughs) Well, he did, but he also knew that once you delete something, you'll, you'll never go back in version control and find it again. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's so hard when you're like, oh yeah, there was a file. All we have to do is r- like resurrect all 5,000 previous revisions and search each one, right? Like you'll never find it. So I was like, look, let me just like make a clone of our project, put it in a different Git repository, and then it'll be there and easy to search. And then we can um, we can, uh, we can can just delete it from our working repository. And he agreed to that. So we, I basically came up with a compromise to where we could meet his needs and meet my needs. And little tip here, we never used the code. (laughs) It stayed deleted. (laughs) So uh, what you're saying is fork your company's project. Yes. (laughs) Now this case is a little harder because it's actually production code, it looks like, that's in use. Yeah, it sounds like that. And so it's never easy to propose a rewrite. And it's doubly hard when the CTO feels personal ownership over the stuff you want to rewrite. It sounds like zero documentation or comments, very brittle, hard to understand, um, hard to test, buggy. It 
my my impression from reading this is that the CTO might be kind of the cowboy coder like chief developer type and and that can be really valuable for an early stage startup where you're just trying to get as much stuff done as possible and you sacrifice some stuff to do that um and and the company might be transitioning into a different stage where the CTO role is not write the bulk of the product mm-hmm. it's help your team develop the product and and the CTO sounds like they're still a little bit heads down in the code like the fact yeah. that i guess it depends on the size of your company but the fact that your CTO would know very directly as you're changing his code um sounds like they're they're pretty heads down in the code still which is not mm-hmm. i mean if they have enough time to be that heads down in the code they they have enough time to to work with the team to build code the team can understand and my impression is they're so busy that they're not really a part of the team and they're in meetings all the time and trying to do a bunch of other stuff and then they'll just like drop some code bombs every once in a while <laughs> um with which the team has to deal with and and that's that's harmful to the team that's yes. the opposite of what your job is as a cto i the term i would put on that is unsustainable yeah i i think again we harp on this point but no one most people in engineering management do not know how to do it because they they get put in there because they were there early or they're good developers they've never seen good management um and and this is a thing that i could see i i could see this as a mistake caused by lack of management experience either directly or having been modeled to to the mm-hmm. cto now it might but be that the cto oh sorry go ahead I was just going to say, it's pretty clear there's a right way to do this, which is not hold your team hostage because they're scared to tell you your code is hard for them to work with, but you also don't have the bandwidth to be a developer that can help the team out. I don't know. That's the wrong way. (laughs) So let me play devil's advocate with you here. So what if it's a small small team situation and if you don't get a product out the door soon, your company is going to go out of business, like you're going to run out of funding. Now um, you just put up with it and move move on. Then you should tell the team that. As a CTO, you should say, "I know this code is crap, but we're going to yeah. go out of business if we try to rewrite it." Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I understand. I wrote code that is hard for you for other people to work in, and that's the cost of keeping the company alive. And we'll go back and fix it later. But just just the CTO getting defensive and saying like, "You can't change my code. It's the best." Well, he kind of um, said that. He says in the question, he gets angry and tells us that we're not focused on delivering a finished product. Like, is he right when he says that? I don't know. Obviously, we don't. But I would ask yourself that question really hard. Like, is this just a knee-jerk reaction that he's using mm. as a straw man to deflect the true argument? Or is he right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, every product has code in it that is horrible. That is true. M- maybe even most of the code. <laughs> yeah (laughs) yeah i i guess it it comes down to what is the cost to the team and can you afford to pay that cost and can you verbalize that cost to your cto yeah yeah well you just i i was getting all heated and you like you popped me like a balloon (laughs) like maybe you're right (laughs) Oh, there's there's always two sides to this story. I once had a, I once heard that silly, I'm going to call it a dad phrase, a dad figure of speech. Um, no matter how thin you slice a pancake, it still has two sides. 
That's amazing. <laughs> Dad wisdom. <laughs> I'm going to try and use that out of context as much as possible. It just means nothing. People look at me weird. My dad will just appear out of nowhere and be like, you've made it, son. Yeah, good job, son. <laughs> <laughs> now you see. <laughs> I, I think, okay, you could be right that they're in a life or death situation. Um, I think the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle where, yeah, there's pressure to get stuff done, but also it's it's harmful for the engineering team and the CTO is holding on a little bit too strongly to his own code and also his role as a developer on the team. Yeah, that I think that's very likely. So as a CTO of a growing team, I'm going to assume it's growing because the questionnaire said it was a startup. Um, you should be involved just enough technically to stay connected with the team so you don't lose sight of what they're doing and how they're working, but not so much that you get in their way. And it's really easy to get in their way and not even realize you've gotten in the way. And that may be what's happening here. And in which case, it's probably time to confront your CTO and have a discussion about expectation of role. Yeah, I mean, it's it's possible, like Dave mentioned, it's possible that your CTO is right, that you're too distracted on code quality or by code quality and not focused enough on the product. But it's also possible that your CTO doesn't realize the damage that this is doing to the team because to them they're in meetings all day and then they go back and see some code and they're like ah and then they like dive in to try and fix it they get distracted and pulled off into other stuff and it's in this weird half done mm-hmm. state I've, I've seen that i've done that actually a lot um <laughs> me too and and it's it's when, when you have so many different things pulling at you it's hard to see it, it can be hard to step back and see like oh this specific thing i'm doing is harming my team when you have all yeah. this other stuff you're doing at the same time. Totally um, true. Hence the karate. We've come full <laughs> circle. <laughs> you disarmed them. I mean, how, how would you have that conversation productively without... It, it sounds like the CTO getting defensive is a risk. How would you approach that to try and, and make it less, uh, less, less difficult? Fundamentally, you have a conflict here with your CTO. And the best way to resolve a conflict is to reduce the amount of pressure you put on the person to perform in some kind of theatrical mode, right? So don't put them in a situation where they're sitting in front of the whole team and you stand up out of nowhere and accuse them of being a code hoarder, you know? Or a code <laughs> hoarder. <laughs> um, instead, I would, I would schedule some one-on-one time where you can speak privately about them. And I found that people respond to concerns much better when you do it this way. And try not to be hostile, try not to be aggressive. And instead, state the problem with objective facts as much as you can. Um, Things like, it took me a lot longer to do X feature because of this code. If we could take some time to rewrite it bit by bit over the coming X number of months, then I think maybe we could could definitely improve our velocity and it would, in the end, be better for the customer. Or, you know, pick some value that matters to your company. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, the one that you honestly think is being the most impacted and follow it to a conclusion. Yeah, that makes sense to me. You got you to de-escalate. And then when the CTO offers a counterpoint, really listen and try to understand and restate out loud what you understood them to say. You know, if the CTO says, look, maybe they will say, <laughs> we're going to be out of business in three weeks <laughs> unless we get some product out the door like tomorrow, you know, then... Suddenly you don't care as much yeah. about their code <laughs> having no comments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, or they might have some other very much legitimate reason. 
and li- really listen and understand and show them. You can't just listen and understand. You have to show them that you understood for them to feel like you're playing on the on the level playing field. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Just go for the karate chop. Just go for the the karate chop. <laughs> All this listening is hard work. <laughs> chop, chop. <laughs> <laughs> an, an emphatic karate chop to end the meeting. Uh, is it time to give an emphatic karate chop to end this question? Have we answered it? I think so. Oh. Nope, one last thing. If all of that fails, go over the CEO's head and tell the CEO that you should be the CTO because your CTO's code sucks. <laughs> that works you every time. You have battled in the arena of Vim and come out victorious. <laughs> <laughs> Vimtorious. Yeah, but then your CTO could just say, this code is above your understanding. Yeah. <laughs> and if you were a better developer, <laughs> you would realize it's true beauty and clarity. <laughs> you don't understand. It just uses, yeah, it's anything you don't understand is a monad, and then you you're just dumbfounded and defeated. And that, but at that moment, you will be enlightened. <laughs> All right, I think we've answered the question. Yep. Good luck, good. and please, if if you do anything about this, let us know how it goes. This is a tricky situation, and also one I think is is fairly common i think so maybe not know. with your cto but definitely with your peers code yeah this archetype of, I mean, of working in people's code where they're defensive about it absolutely and any code that i didn't write in the last hour is crappy right <laughs> yeah yep that is true just instantly it's it's got a half-life of, <laughs> of an hour yeah about an hour <laughs> okay where can people go dave if they want to submit more questions Go to our website, softskills.audio. Many, many of you have done that. There are some fantastic questions in our backlog. Um, you can also uh, go there to check out past episodes, and you can comment on them. We have a nice discuss comment system, so you can go and write stuff if you want to add things. Many of you have done that. It's been really fun to go past, uh, to go review past episodes and read what people have written to fill in the gaps that we left behind. Super cool. So thanks for that. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, as always, we would love it if you shared this show. We really love doing it, and um, we we want to help answer more questions from people. We like being exposed to all the variety of concerns and problems that exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of these are, are are interesting to think about, even if they might kind of suck to suffer through. Yeah, <laughs> your so, your loss is our gain. <laughs> yeah, we're like vampires, I guess, in that way. <laughs> preying on your emotional distress so continue to feed us so we grow ever more powerful um and do that by tweeting about the show (laughs) oh boy that got a little lost tweet about the show share it with your friends uh do anything you can to, to to share it if you enjoy it if you see someone's phone sitting open on their desk and unlocked just go open the podcast app and subscribe before you tweet hashtag poopin that's the traditional thing you do first but subscribe to the show first okay all right i think we're done catch you next week bye everyone